ministry behind bars is very addicting. Once you do it, it's very hard to stop because it gives a lot of great joy and celebration to the heart. Because inmates are like a sponge. They soak up anything that you have to give them. One of the things that the inmates, uh, they express to me is that they feel very lonely. What I would really like is for people just to have a, a heightened awareness of the need for praying for prisoners. This is Made for Love, a Catholic podcast about real people living out the call to love. I'm your host, Sarah Perla. Today, we're talking about incarceration and how it impacts families. It's a two-parter episode because we are going to start on the inside with four people who have been involved in prison ministry and then move outside to talk about the impact on families, post-incarceration ministry, and how you can get involved. Since Jesus explicitly identifies himself with prisoners, it's not surprising that this is an important ministry for the church. During formation with the Congregation of Holy Cross in the seminary, I did a CPE, that is a clinical pastoral education unit. Typically, those are done in hospitals, but I was given the opportunity to do that in a prison. So I went to the Federal Correctional Institution in Pleasanton, California for a summer, and I spent every day eight hours in the prison learning how to be a good minister, a good and faithful minister to the women there. It was a women's prison, medium security. And it uh, just taught me a lot of lessons about ministry, about prison ministry in particular, and about myself as well. This is Bishop Walk. I am Bishop Bill Walk, or should I say William Walk? I'm Bishop William Walk, Holy Cross religious, currently the Bishop of the Diocese of Pensacola, Tallahassee. Bishop Walk had to learn early on what it is like to have nothing but yourself and Jesus to offer someone. And that was really important. That's a great lesson for anyone to learn, any priest, any minister, any bishop, to learn that we can't really do a lot to change someone's situation, but we can listen. We can accompany them, as Pope Francis often says. We can walk with people and and help them to grow in their faith and develop their faith, celebrate their faith well. A priest in Bishop Walk's current diocese learned the same thing. He also did prison ministry as a seminarian. And so it was in those early stages of my own experience and working with the incarcerated that I found that it was first and foremost, each person, it's one person at a time. It's relational. This is Father Dustin. Father Dustin Fedden. I'm a Catholic priest in the Diocese of Pensacola, Tallahassee, Florida. I uh, serve at two parishes just south of Tallahassee and am the executive director at Joseph House. I asked Father Dustin if his time at the prison helped him to know more surely that God was calling him to be a priest. Absolutely. In fact, it was the very first night going out into the G-Wing in Florida State Prison, going through all the different steel gates, uh, not knowing at all, totally intimidated. In many ways, thinking, like, how am I possibly going to talk to men that have been convicted, charged, perhaps most of them guilty of taking human life, um, how would I be able to interact with them? I mean, I grew up watching you know, Hannibal Lecter and Silence of the Lambs and all sorts of law and order kinds of shows and not knowing what to anticipate and expect. And yet, from the very beginning, the first conversations that I had with men that are essentially condemned to die in these prisons, I ended up having the most ordinary of conversations. 
conversations about sports and SEC football and Florida State football and local politics. Uh, and then certainly some of them wanting to talk about God and theology and their faith. That first night was really an experience where I found myself uh, as one of our volunteers in terms of front porch ministry. So what is it really like in a prison? First of all, what you can't get watching television or watching a film or a documentary is that you can't get the uh, the sounds and the smells and just the feel of the environment. When you go into especially a high maximum security prison like the ones that I go into, you have this overwhelming sense of you're entering into a different zone, different social landscape, one that is filled with steel and metal, clinging chains and screaming, not to be overly graphic, but smells that you realize that you're in an area where there's a lot of human waste and there's people that have not bathed in a very long time. So there's all of the reality that you're entering into a warehouse where human beings are kind of stored. One of the realities that Father Dustin encountered was that sometimes incarceration was almost like a family tradition. And what you end to see is a intergenerational state of incarceration. So many of the men that I visit with, one of their parents were incarcerated, or at least someone in their immediate family were incarcerated. And now they are incarcerated. And now their son or their daughter is having to be their, their father in prison which increase the likelihood, statistically speaking, that then their children will be incarcerated. So you have this cycle of incarceration that gets passed down where it is almost accepted that what it means to be poor and black, it means that you or someone that you love within your immediate family will at some point be in prison. Fathers do not come to prison hoping to be followed there by their sons. They don't want that for their children. So many of the men that I visit with talk about their children. They are aware of this, and they are trying to kind of encourage their son or their daughter to choose different paths in their life. But they also know that it is almost impossible for them to model that because their parenting comes through random, rare visits in prison cafeterias. So they don't have opportunities to model behavior as a parent, as a father, or as a mother with their children. It's hard to parent from the inside. One of my coworkers at the USCCB has done prison ministry for over 20 years. I'm Father Michael Carson from Diocese of San Jose, and now I'm the Assistant Director for Native American Affairs at the United States Catholic Conference of Bishops. I got involved in visiting prisoners on death row, and I was doing that uh, once a month for some 20 years. Some of his time was with young men at Juvenile Hall. I started going to celebrate Mass at Juvenile Hall on Saturdays and then doing reconciliation with the, the kids in Juvenile Hall. And I was doing that for some 18 years. Father Mike thinks that being a mentor is a powerful way to impact the future. Well, the most spectacular way that I found in terms of transforming a person is getting involved in mentoring, mentoring at-risk kids. Long incarceration, of course, is very ineffective in terms of recidivism, of uh, trying to get these kids' life around. 
good mentoring program is incredibly effective of getting these kids' life around. We don't need to know that by statistics. We just need to know that by own faith. That if you love somebody, they can transform their life and uh, get them to doing something differently. Father Mike also shared a story that demonstrates the strange paradox of love in the midst of the trial of incarceration. San Quentin had arrangements to meet with my inmate. And back then, all was changed now. They had a, a large room with a lot of chairs where inmates can meet with each other and meet with other family members just waiting for my inmate to come out. And there was this uh, other inmate, also in death row, who was uh, very anxious and very nervous. Back then, although a seminarian, I was wearing a Roman collar. And when he saw me in my collar, he ran right up to me, screaming, Are you a priest? Are you a priest? Are you a priest? And I said, No, I'm a seminarian. And he said, Well, you'll do. And I thought to myself, Do for what? Just talk about human sacrifice? What he's talking about? Every year uh, since he's been there, he reenacts his wedding vows during his anniversary. And the chaplain there at San Quentin, the Catholic chaplain, was called off to an emergency and couldn't do it. So he was trying to find somebody else to do it for him. Well, anyone can do that. So he had his wife there, and then the inmates, they, they made kind of like an aisle. It was kind of cute. And then I was at the end, he gave me the marriage book. And I was trying to find the right page, but I couldn't find it. Yeah, the bride and groom came up, and uh, I just put the book down. And I just asked them uh, just to say from your heart your love for each other. The husband said all the normal things appropriate to the occasion. I love you. You're precious to me. You know, thank your standard Hallmark card. And then the wife went, I always remember what she said. And she took a deep breath. I remember that. She looked very deeply in his eyes. And then she began one by one announcing all the things that's gone wrong in her life. That he was arrested only a couple months after they got married. Her family disowned her. That she's dealing with a lot of guilt and anger herself. And all these things, she's numbered them one by one. I remember that. And I thought to myself, ooh, this is going horribly wrong. Mike was about to get an important lesson about love. But then after she mentioned all these things that had gone wrong in her life after the marriage, she had a good pause. And she said in a very strong, very powerful voice, because of these things, my love for you has grown stronger, not weaker. And then she said again, because of these things, my love for you has grown stronger, not weaker. And after she said that, you could hear a pin drop. And all these uh, big heart inmates had a little tear going through their eyes, and so did I. I remember that because that's the way God works for us when we get into trouble. And His love for us becomes stronger. And we have to lock into that love. If I could just share very quickly my personal story of how I got involved. When I met the Lord, I would say, oh, I'm sorry, I could never have gone inside a prison. But um, it was in the late 90s shortly after becoming director of the prison ministry here at The Word Among Us, which I did you know, behind my desk, for the safety of my desk, I was asked by Sister Dolores, a chaplain of two men's institutions in Hagerstown, if I could help organize an evening of prayer. And as I thought of, you know, who could I ask? The Lord asked me, are you going to organize it or join it? And I joined a team, and I always say I slid into prison ministry on pure grace. And that grace is poured out every time I go in, even now. This is Angela. You want me to start now? Yep, we're starting. Okay. Uh, <laughs> my name is Angela Barron, and I'm director of the prison ministry for The Word Among Us. And I'm also a volunteer at MCIW, which is the Maryland Correctional Institute for Women in Jessup, Maryland. I swear, I didn't even know she had a British accent when I asked her to be on the show. That is a bonus. 
I asked Angela what her experience visiting a prison for the first time was like. I went in with four men as it was a men's institution. But I think what I was surprised was that the fear of going through, I know the gates and the gates closing behind me, that just dissipated when I sat down with the men and they were my brothers in Christ. You know, I thought, I, how can I relate to them? I'm from England, as you can tell. <laughs> you know, how am I going to relate? What do we have in common? But the fear really, really went. It was amazing. We related about our everyday things. But then, you know, we rate the fact that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Angela mostly goes to a women's prison now. So what is Angela's goal when she meets with these women? The desire of my heart when I go in is really to share with the women one-on-one or in a group in such a way to give them hope and encouragement and to listen to them and to know that they have value and that they have dignity. And most importantly, that they're not forgotten, they're not alone, and they are in the minds and the thoughts of the church. Angela is part of an ecumenical outreach at the prison. The Kairos Prison Ministry International program that is run inside men and women's prisons is in about 30 states. It's an ecumenical program. We're usually a team of about 33, 36 women from all different denominations. And we go in and we present a four-day retreat. So we go in on the Thursday, and then all day Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. We eat with the ladies. We pray with them. We give talks. But we come out at night. We stay at a local hotel or people go home. It's presenting God's love, his mercy, and his forgiveness through talks. And within the talks, whichever team member will give their own personal witness. And there's discussions and there's prayer and singing. When the volunteers come to offer this retreat, they do not come empty-handed. They bring cookies, and they bring a long banner with the names of people who signed up to pray for the retreat. The focus is on God's forgiveness. They get a bag of cookies every evening when they leave, but on Saturday after the forgiveness service, we give them an extra bag of cookies, and they are asked to give it to someone that they maybe have had an argument with or they just find difficult to reach out to. And I remember one one evening, one lady took her two bags of cookies on the Sunday. I said, well, what did you do with your cookies? And she said, I ate them because I can't forgive myself. And, you know, I've seen her since, and she says, I'm moving towards forgiving herself. She's a liar. So, you know, her her crime was, was obviously taking another's life. Another woman at the retreat had a different breakthrough. I remember one evening, one of the ladies said to me, I'm going to go and I'm going to call my father because I need to offer him forgiveness for what he did to me. Angela visits the prison almost every Sunday, not just for the bigger events. During the Mass or Communion service with these 15 to 20 women, there's one place for personal concerns to emerge. It's during the prayers of intercession that you get to know more of what is on the mind and the heart of the ladies because the priest and myself, we would lead in some prayers and then we open it up and It so often is for their children, their parents, for those struggling with addictions, either their own struggle or those that they know. It may be for, you know, those awaiting court dates or those that have just been released. A few months ago, one of the ladies heard the night before that her husband had died. And um, there was a lot of tears and a lot of grief. 
And so we prayed for her husband, for the repose of his soul, and for comfort for her and her family. These women can have visitors, right? They're allowed to visit whenever they wish, every other week. But the sad thing is many of the inmates do not get visitors, and they don't get letters. I've had some conversations with inmates who I know for 30 years one woman didn't get any visits. We're going to get into why that might happen a little later. Prison ministry also intersects with Angela's day job at Word Among Us. Two years ago, we started what we call our special inmate program. On the actual magazine, I don't know if you've seen it, but we've taken out the binding cards and the advertisements for books and things like that. And I now write special content for the inmates, for those 76,000 that go to the inmates. And the topics have included over the last two years, the Eucharist and Confession, Mary Andur of Knots, Lectio Divina, the Rosary, Forgiveness. If you're Catholic, you've probably seen the word among us at some point. They are often available at the back of the church, if your parish subscribes to them. I had no idea that they were so active in reaching out to prisoners. 76,000 of them get the word among us. Here, I usually receive maybe 15 to 20 letters from inmates every week. They're either wanting a subscription to the word among us. Many of them also want us to link them up with a pen pal program. And I've got a contact at the Knights of Mortar. So if someone wants a pen pal, I send them the address for the Knights of Mortar. Then they write directly to the Knights. Angela also found out from prison chaplains what topics the inmates most needed addressed. It was overwhelmingly on forgiveness. And so we here at The Word Among Us have a pamphlet that we send to prison. It's called God Forgives Can I. That's in English and in Spanish. Angela asks prisoners who receive the inmate edition to send her words of inspiration to put on the back. She read me one of them. God will never burden us with more than we can handle. Over the course of 10 years, there were times when I was not sure I would make it through the day, let alone the rest of this sentence. Now that is almost over. What I have learned is that when you don't think God hears us, we actually have his full attention. And that was from a prisoner in Florida. Okay, now we're going to talk a little more about the situation of families who have a loved one on the inside. I was talking to someone just recently, and they said, you know, I served time along with him while he was doing his time inside. Life is almost put on hold. And it's a huge impact on the family members because often they're the breadwinner. It's a very stressful time. And I know from being in a women's institution, often the children are being cared for either by an aunt or a grandparent. There's a lot of shame, a lot of guilt, a lot of sadness. Sometimes they feel as though they've done something wrong. So many of the incarcerated come from deep poverty. That's probably the one kind of common denominator. The vast majority of men that I serve and visit in prison uh, is that they are poor. And then the next would be they are poor and they are people of color. They are oftentimes African-American, especially here in the South. And so poverty, the fact that you have so many men that come from impoverished backgrounds and then they're sent off to prison for years and years and years, decades, means that for many of them, their family members don't even visit them, don't see them, not because they don't love them and they don't care about them, but because they don't have the money 
to put gas in the car and to go drive seven hours and to get a hotel room to even be able to visit their family members. This is Father Dustin again. The criminal act itself can tear apart families. Oftentimes, family members can be involved in whatever the crime was. So you have that, that that causes such devastation. The crime itself can cause a deep wound in the family, a wound that sometimes hurts so much that the family cuts off contact. It's too difficult for them to keep into contact because every time they write a letter to their son or their daughter, they are reminded of the crime that they committed and the stigma that they've had to suffer from from other people in the community because they are that person's mother or that person's sister or that person's brother. Here's one story about that. There was one gentleman that told me that he received a card from his mother, a happy Easter card. And in the card, this gentleman's mother was essentially informing him that this would be the last time that she would write, that she could simply no longer emotionally could no longer take all of the issues that comes with their relationship and, and, and staying in contact. So this man had to read a letter, which is thrilling for anyone incarcerated, get mail from family. It's oftentimes it's the greatest part of their week is mail. But sadly, what he had to read in that mail was the fact that his mother simply could no longer stay in contact with him. So it takes the state of loneliness and estrangement and kind of being alienated from family and pounds it all the more. Angela encountered someone at a retreat that was specifically for women who had a loved one in prison. There was a woman who lost contact with her son when he was incarcerated and the relationship broke down completely. She didn't really know where he was or what he was doing. And when she attended the Kairos outside retreat weekend, she received a written letter from him because the team members had tracked down her son and asked the son to write a letter. In fact, they had done that for all of the guests, as it were, attending the weekend. And after that, communication began between the son and the woman. And the team collected money to pay for her to fly out to meet with her son while he was incarcerated. So that relationship was healed. When someone has a family member in jail or prison, there is a sense of shame for the family, you know, as well as for that person. I think the temptation is not to tell anyone, but that's part of the problem. I think if if we just hold on to these things in our families or in our own lives and don't share them with other people, then there's that risk of of that cycle continuing, you know, in, in, in our society and in our families. But if we share them with others, if we reach out to others and say, I need your help, I need your prayers, I need your support for me or for my loved one who's in prison, then perhaps we, we can begin to break that, that cycle. This is Bishop Walk again. And since it is so important to break that stigma. In addition to having um, a great care and love for those who are in prison or having just been released from prison, personally in my own family, my niece was released from prison after spending a little over four years. Obviously, I love her very much and I care about how she is doing. And I see that 
she has a good place in which to live afterwards that is with family to see her doing well, taking little steps to do well, making sure that she doesn't find herself back in prison. That inspires me even more, you know, to to want to provide an opportunity like that for other people in our diocese and in our church. That's right, y'all. Don't be afraid to talk about it. Here's Father Dustin. So the best thing that we can do to, to help remove that stigma, right, is within our tradition to point, first of all, within the biblical tradition. Moses was a murderer. David was a murderer. So within our own tradition, we have so many examples in the Bible of flawed human beings, people of God, great human beings who did a lot of extraordinary things that in one moment made a very, very grave, very, very bad decision that would cause them so much grief. But still, would we want to be judged by the worst things that we've done? David, a man after God's own heart, did some really bad stuff. I think as sinners, all of us as sinners, can imagine, can think about the worst sins that we've committed. Now just imagine if that sin became publicly known and was what everyone identified with. I believe when we think of it through that prism, those lens, then I think we would become much more understanding, compassionate, merciful, not only towards those individuals that have committed crimes, that have done unspeakable harm to other human beings, we would also extend that compassion and that understanding to their family members. This is what family members have to deal with. Someone that they know or have known in lots of different ways and in lots of different circumstances is reduced to one terrible thing that they did. I know some that live in shame of what their family member did and don't want to speak of it, don't want to be identified with them. And that's understandable. That's a normal human response. And the thing is, y'all, we, the church, are the ones who should know and appreciate most deeply that we are worth more than our worst sin. If we consider the fact that the very mission of Christ was to redeem sinners, then we as a church should be the best example of practicing that form of redemption by being more compassionate and understanding of those that not only have committed crimes, but the family members that have now been affected by those crimes that their sons or daughters or mothers or fathers have committed. Not only that, y'all, but we have the answer to the meaning of life, not to brag or anything. St. Paul says in the second letter to the Corinthians that Jesus Christ, and this is my favorite translation of it, Jesus Christ was never alternately yes and no. He was never anything but yes. Never anything but yes. Why does that, is that the case? Well, you think about it, yes is always the answer to a question. So what's the question? And I would say that the question is that that is in every human, in every human heart, and that is, uh, does my life matter? Does my life really matter? This is Bishop Carey. My name is Bishop Liam Carey from the Diocese of Baker, Oregon. We were talking about something completely different when he said all this, and I immediately knew the Holy Spirit wanted it on this episode. Because what does a person in prison really need to hear? What do they wonder? Does my life matter? 
Well, yeah, it matters to my parents when I'm young. Maybe not. As we know, a lot of people, that's precisely the problem, is they don't, they know they don't matter to their parents. They don't even see their parents. Will I matter to my, my brothers and sisters? Yes, and again, not always, but yes. Let's say that, let's say they do. I matter to my friends? Yes, but as, as we live our life on, we notice that our parents, we move away from our parents, or they die, or our friends move away, we have new friends, or all. And so, uh, maybe I mattered to someone 20 years ago, but that person I haven't seen, and I don't, they don't even remember me, maybe, for all I know. So do I, I don't matter too much to that person. Maybe I don't matter that much to the people I'm around right now. Uh, and even the ones I matter, that my life matters, they're going to die. At the end of my life, does my life really matter? And uh, who could give me an adequate answer to that? I can esteem myself to the heights of the Mount Olympus, but it doesn't answer that question because what this what this shows is that what I'm really looking for is not so much does my life matter. I'm not concerned about self-esteem. I'm really concerned about self-worth. And what self-worth is telling me is what would someone give for me? What would someone pay for me? That's the question that's in the human heart. Huh? Jesus Christ was never anything but yes. Practically every episode where we talk about hard things ends up here, y'all. And here the cross of Christ comes before us, the crucifix. And that's the answer. Does my life matter? How much is my life worth? Here's the answer. Yes. It's worth everything. It's worth the death of the Son of God. Okay, we're going to break here and end part one. Next week on part two, we're going to talk more about post-incarceration ministries like Joseph House and how you can get involved if these episodes have inspired you. Thanks. If you like what you've heard today, please support this project by sharing it with your friends, subscribing to Made for Love on iTunes, writing a review, or commenting on the show notes at marriageuniqueforareason.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and all those things. This is essentially a one-woman production, so yours truly did everything, except for the theme music, which is composed and produced by Michael Taylor. And then the new music is from First Come.